It's one step at a time, everyone. How are we? Good. Wow, that was rich. It's uh, so good to be back together. And uh, in this space, no doubt. If you would um, and are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Sorry, you're doing lots of ups and downs. We're reading from John 16 today, verses 5 to 7. These are the words of Jesus, red letter, said this. Now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat as I will. Well, it is September. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Matt Naismith, and I am the pastor for teaching and vision of our church family. And nine years ago, uh, this church was planted, and it is an amazing thing to see what God has done in those nine years, how he's grown us, not simply numerically, but uh, I believe in maturity, as God has continued to, uh, by his spirit, to change us. Uh, some people here will remember the early days um, And now we're here. Amazing. Praise be to God. It is on him that our church stands. We are in this series that we've titled Vision. We do it every single year for the last nine years. Every single fall, we teach a vision series. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we forget who we are. We forget what God has called us to do. And so every year in this season we do this series. And we're emphasizing our vision series, our mission statement, in Guelph as it is in heaven. And so this morning, we're going to dig into that a little bit more. We have three values. And so to give you a bit of a taste of where we're going, today I'm teaching on our value of encounter. Next week, I'll teach on our value of formation. The following week, I will teach on our value of mission. Spencer's then going to do a message uh, titled Practical Considerations. Very practically, how do we live out these three values? And then uh, we'll do a hot seat Sunday on Thanksgiving, uh, which... Maybe we're cheating a bit because some of us will maybe be at home for, uh, for that. Uh, but Hot Seat Sunday will be fun nonetheless. Here's our vision. We desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every single person has a relationship with Jesus. We are unapologetic about that. We want people to come to know Jesus. We just don't want people to come to know good uh, social habits, uh, a good way of living their lives. We want people to come to know Jesus Christ. He lived his life so that we could live. He died the death that we should have died, and he was raised on the third day, securing us eternal life forever. And he then went to be with his father, and he promises one day that he will return for us, his people. And we look forward to that day. Let's take a moment now before we dig in to check in with how each of us are doing mind, soul, body, and spirit. And I'd simply invite you to invite Jesus to speak to you today by his spirit so that we would be a changed people.
Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here with us. You say that where two or three are gathered together, there you are. And there are a few more than two or three. And so we want to lean upon your presence, speaking to us in the mundane and the miraculous. And we pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would do the miraculous work of conversion, of bringing dead people to life. Awake, O sleeper. We lean upon you in all things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in April of 2011, a pastor by the name of Craig Rochelle released, released a book titled this, The Christian Atheist, the subtitle being Believing in God but Living as If He Doesn't. Now, while I never read the book, I knew a number of people that did, and they all said how challenging the book was. And maybe from the subtitle, you can get a bit of a picture of why that would be the case. Maybe in some ways, you can relate to the subtitle of the book, that you believe that God exists, but in your everyday life, you don't live as if he exists. And you come back on a Sunday morning to Church of the City's gatherings, and you say, hmm, there's God, but I didn't see him in the rest of my week. The Christian, uh, or the Catholic philosopher, Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, in his book, Ethics of Onticity, coined the term imminent frame to essentially describe what is happening here. Within the imminent frame, he says there's two types of imminent frames. He says there's the closed imminent frame. He says this is a belief system that believes simply in the material, in the natural, but does not have any view of the metaphysical or the transcendent. Atheism would be within this closed, imminent frame. He then says that there is the open, imminent frame, which means that although our daily experience isn't imbued with the supernatural, we do believe that some transcendent being does exist and that he can break into our world at certain times and places. Therefore, while it is open, it is still an imminent Frame. I've created a graphic for us to kind of understand a little bit of what this looks like. If the arrow is the trajectory of your life, the transcendent is above that dark black line of the top and below the bottom, yet we live in this imminent frame, rarely touching the transcendent God and his existence on a daily basis. Alan Noble, in his brilliant book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age, writes this about the temptation and the challenge of living life in this imminent frame. He writes, while it's possible for us to believe in a transcendent God and still live within the imminent frame, it isn't easy. In fact, it's becoming increasingly difficult Providence, mystery, contingency, uncertainty, wonder, and randomness have been systematically, bureaucratically, technologically, and economically drained from our world. Living in such a world makes it difficult to conceive of being outside the imminent frame. Most of us do not rely on good weather for our livelihood or sustenance. We struggle to recognize the beauty in the natural world because it has been so thoroughly conquered and wonder is quashed through scientific language and nature channel explainers. We are masters of our health, our safety, our morality, our time, and our success. Living in this kind of society, it is hard to sense the transcendent. It seems superfluous. 
The situation is so pervasive that when we bear witness to our faith to a non-Christian, they imagine the faith as just another belief system with a closed, imminent frame. A.W. Tozer, the American pastor and author, spiritualized this a bit and wrote, We may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is gone. We have initiated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. Maybe this is resonating for some of us, and we recognize immediately, I'm living in light of this imminent frame. And so the question is, how do we break out of it? What is the solution to this problem? First solution, I think, starts with desire. Is this something that you genuinely want to see change? And is this something that we together want as a church community? Well, as the leadership in this church, I believe that we respond with a resounding yes. And that doesn't mean we do this perfectly, but we respond with a resounding yes, which is why encounter is one of our three values and one of our pillars. And in encounter, we claim this, as God's adopted children, we long for daily tangible encounters with him. We want to break out of the imminent frame. And because we believe that we have been adopted by God and are now a family, it makes absolute sense that we would want to be in an ongoing relationship with a heavenly father and with our heavenly father. Imagine an adopted child to their father that's adopted them says, thanks for adopting me, but I don't want to talk to you. I don't want anything to do with you. At least that's the way we live our lives. And so if we desire to see our communities, the community of Guelph and beyond, look more like heaven so every person has a relationship with him. We must become the type of community that experiences these daily tangible encounters with God rather than living as Christian atheists, believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. Now, that probably all sounds great, but how in the world is that going to happen? How do we daily and tangibly encounter God? Now, while there's many ways that I could address this question, I want to visit some surprising words from Jesus, words that I read earlier from John 16, and then dig into some of the foundational significance of what he is saying, what that means for you and for me, and then how we as a community are attempting to live this out. And so I want to read these words for us again, and they will be on the screen for us. This is Jesus. Now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now Jesus speaks these words immediately after telling his disciples that they will be persecuted and some of them even killed for their witness and knowledge of Jesus and transformed life by the Father. 
I want you to imagine being one of Jesus' disciples, following him each and every single day, and hearing this, would you in fact believe that it was an advantage that he is leaving and that another is coming? Now, there's obviously a caveat to that question of, well, who's this other that is coming? Is he good? Who is it? For those of us that know the Christian story, who's the helper that Jesus is speaking about? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, before we go any further, I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis 1. And we need to do some base-level theology about this helper, about this Holy Spirit, to study his presence, person, and power throughout history. And what this, these words from Jesus, what they signify and what they mark as a turning point in the Christian story. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, page 1 of the scriptures, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And we read this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit here is ruach. Turn to your neighbor and say, Ruach. And it means wind, breath, or spirit. The imagery here is of a bird literally hovering over the water. The point that the writer is trying to make to us is that the Spirit of God is present at creation. And we have the language of breath, wind, and water. God desires to be with his people. But then tragically in Genesis 3, Humanity rebels against God, and his presence leaves them in the way that it was present in Genesis 1 and 2, and the way that we read it will be about in Revelation 21 and 22. However, throughout the Old Testament, we read about his presence in a few different places, and I want to go through these places once again to highlight when we get back to John 16, why this is such a significant thing and how it changes our lives on a day-to-day basis. The first part of the story is Sinai. In Exodus 19, verse 9, 16 to 19, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Just in case there's any confusion, this is the Spirit of God on Mount Sinai. Trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Imagine being one of these children of Israel, the Israelites, watching this scene, being blown away. They're even told, if you touch the mountain, you will die. And they're just watching this scene, likely trembling themselves. 
God comes to Israel in cloud and fire. There's a trumpet sound. Yet Moses is the only one who's able to step up. We then fast forward to the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8 and 9, we read, God's saying, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God is saying, I now want to dwell in the midst of my people in this particular space, the tabernacle. And so God's tangible presence will be dwelling in their midst. It's mobile God with them. And as the tabernacle, as his presence moves, so the tabernacle would move and the people would move. Then in Exodus 40, verse 34 to 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And listen, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the presence and the beauty of God there with his people. And everyone's just looking in wonder at, wow! We then fast forward to the temple 1 Kings 8, 10 to 13, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So where was God's presence before in the tabernacle, now in the temple? But then tragically, Israel continues to disobey. They're sent into exile. This is the story of Israel, and the temple is destroyed. Then in exile, Ezekiel 10, verse 18, we read this, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Everything before, I don't know if you caught it, everything was before about God's presence coming. We now read about God's presence leaving. And from there, seems like he's gone. His manifest, tangible presence gone. But then later in Ezekiel, we, we hear these words of prophecy. Ezekiel 37, 13 to 14. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And then he says this, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is over a valley of skeleton bones and God's saying, I'm gonna bring you to life. My spirit is not just going to dwell in the tabernacle, in the temple. My spirit is gonna be in you. Verse 27 and 28 of the same chapter of Ezekiel. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. What we read here is not only will Israel come back to God, but God will as well be in his people, which is odd because God was not in all of his people. He was reserved for the prophet, the priests, and the kings, restricted to particular places at particular times for particular tasks and purposes. And then there's 400 years of silence where it seems like God is absent altogether. Imagine living in those 400 years. You know, certainly generations go by. Where's God? 
He promised that he would be within all of us, yet where is he? Tension is building. And then we arrive to the New Testament. And I just want you now to hear the significance of this. In John 1, said of Jesus, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word for dwelt here is skenu. Turn to your neighbor and say skenu. That can be some good, uh, you know, lunchtime conversation, skenu. And it means to love or to take up residence in, as in a temple or a tabernacle. Jesus is the one filled with the presence of God. He is the walking temple on two legs. He forgives his people. He claims to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Speaking of what? His own body, the new temple, the replacement. And then John 1, 32 to 33, and John the Baptist bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Notice the Spirit descends like a dove and remains on him. The Aramaic Targum, a Hebrew Aramaic translation, translates from Genesis 1 verse 3, the Spirit flapping wings over water, like a dove. Genesis 1 verse 1, John 1 verse 33. You fast forward a little bit in John, and if this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. But in John 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, a time when Jews looked back to the Exodus when God freed them from slavery and everyone would literally come to Jerusalem. I don't know if you knew this about the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd come back to Jerusalem and they would live in tents. And they'd look back to what God has done. And they would then look forward when God would lead the second exodus. On the last day of the feast, the priest would start at the pool of Shalom in Jerusalem. He would fill a gold bucket of water and he would walk to the altar and pour the bucket out as the people would sing together Isaiah 12 verse 7. Notice then what Jesus says on the last day of the feast, in John 7, verse 37 to 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Speaking of his death and his resurrection and then his ascension. Imagine everybody here listening. This is the Middle East, and Jesus says that he is what everyone has been waiting for. He is the presence of God returning. Boom! 
Now, if we then return to John 16, the verses that we read earlier where Jesus promises that the helper will come and that this is to be the disciples' advantage for that to happen, the same spirit who made the mountain of Mount Sinai tremble, we are now reading is going to be unleashed in God's people. And we see this happen at, the, at Pentecost, Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. A weird scene, no doubt. And they were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, brothers and sisters, this is now post-Jesus being glorified. The disciples have been instructed to wait in Jerusalem from the coming of the Holy Spirit, something we read in Acts 1, verses 4 to 5. And so the apostles are waiting for the Ezekiel prophesied of what Jesus promised. And here the Ruach, the Spirit of wind, all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then through the remainder of the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit's presence and God's Spirit dwelling in two particular places. And this is beautiful. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We, the church, Collectively, the people of God, we are the sanctuary, the temple, God's dwelling place. And God's spirit is with us when we gather. But then secondly, and this really should blow our minds, thinking back to the tabernacle and to the temple, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you are a follower of Jesus, your body is the literal temple of God, the place where God dwells. And what we're now waiting for is the day when God's Spirit covers every inch of the cosmos when he returns. Some basic theology there of the Holy Spirit. So what does this all mean? What does this all mean? What, what in the world does this have to do with encounter? The answer to that is that those who trust in Christ have the opportunity to daily encounter God by living with an awareness and dependence on his spirit dwelling inside of them. Those who trust Christ have the opportunity to daily encounter God by living with an awareness and dependence on his spirit dwelling inside of them. For as Acts 2 verse 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have chosen to trust Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. Wow. Praise God. Yet how do we choose each day to live in light of this? How do we live with an awareness? How do, how do we live with a dependence? Firstly, I believe it's in the mundane work of the Holy Spirit. 
In John 16, 8 to 15, the verses following, the ones that I read earlier, we read that the Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, he guides people into truth, he speaks on the Father's authority, and he glorifies Jesus and the Father. I remember somebody that at one point um, led to Christ, the Spirit of God saved this individual, and he said to me a few weeks after he came to know Jesus, he said, Matt, I, I, just, don't, I just don't feel God. But yet he was telling me about all this stuff that he used to do before he became a follower of Jesus. And now suddenly he was feeling guilty about it. And I said, uh, why do you think you're feeling convicted and guilty of all the stuff that before you came to know Jesus and received his spirit you had no problem with? He's like, well, I don't know. I said, the spirit of God is dwelling inside of you, brother. And he was like, really? That's God? Yes. We take so much credit for the stuff the Spirit does in us. Don't we? Like, it's on me. I got it. I'm the one that comes up with all the good ideas. So the Spirit of God dwells inside of you, and one of the works that he does is guiding you into truth. Certainly, he's giving you truth. And he's leading you. He's convicting you of your sin. And at the same time, he glorifies Jesus and the Father. We then read in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 24, the fruit of the Spirit now, I've said this before, and some of you maybe remember me saying this. If you grew up in the church, you probably were part of a Sunday school that taught you each week the fruit of the Spirit. And so you're like, today's patience. And your Sunday school teacher, with all of the love in the world, said, now go this week and be more patient. And you're like, okay, it's on me to be more patient. Yet that's not good theology, brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God, when he dwells inside of you, a byproduct of his presence is you become a more patient person. It's not on you. As we live with an awareness, as we depend on his presence. And then the Spirit of God does some other insane things. And we certainly don't have enough time to talk about these things. But it's in the miraculous. And you can read examples in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 11. And then chapter 14. In which God, by his Spirit, will heal people. We believe here in this church that that is still possible today. Or that God, by his spirit, might give you a word of knowledge about somebody else. Where you suddenly have a sense about somebody that something's going on in their lives. And so you go to them and you say, Lord willing, in these words, I simply submit this to you. I'm sensing this about you. And the person will go, okay, I receive that. We'll test it. I've heard stories of this happening, of someone receiving a word that was like, that person over there is having an affair. You need to go invite them to consider that in their life. And they went over and the person is just breaks into tears like, what? And then that gets into the mundane work of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean mundane as in less, it's still beautiful, but in convicting of sin and leading towards truth. So that's some of maybe some of the ways we can pursue this individually within our communities, but yet how are we pursuing this all as a church? Number one, prayer. Our aim is to be a people who pray, who believe that power changes reality by moving the hand of God. And so we pray for his will to be done here as it is in heaven. We hope to see God's will done in our communities as we pray to know his will and call upon his powerful hand to renew all things. This is prayer on your own. This is prayer in our gatherings, but most importantly, prayer in our communities. 
We must be the type of people that within our communities, our missional communities, or other believers in community together who depend on God and ask him to do things or ask him to be, make us aware of his presence, of the work of conviction, of the guiding into the truth, of the glorification of the Father and the Son. We want to see kingdom-centered prayer. That's praying through the Lord's Prayer. Miracle-asking prayer. Repentance and spiritual growth-centered prayer in every single environment. Lord Jesus, make me aware of my sin. Make me aware of the ways that I am not honoring you or my brothers and sisters, that I might bring more glory and honor to your name, Jesus. There are many ways you can do this. I was talking to somebody in our church this week who says they, they've set a timer on their phone to remind them to pray at different times of the day. That's increasingly raising, having an awareness of God, that he's present and that we can speak to him as our father. Secondly, we're pursuing this as a church in worship. Our aim is to offer the whole of our being to God in worship while singing in song is one way to worship. And certainly we've done that here today. We believe that we are invited to worship God in every aspect of our lives. For as Romans 12 verse 1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we want to help foster and create environments where this can happen, most notably in our communities, but also our gatherings as we serve God together. And then thirdly, communities. Our aim is to live life on life and life in community, encountering God with and through one another. This is what Jesus modeled to us with his disciples and is now how we were, is how we were created to live life with others. You know, some of the ways that this happens in community with others is that we take notice of the progress or struggle of someone in our missional community and we walk with them through it. Right? That's some of, again, the mundane work, the regular work of the Holy Spirit, of walking with someone through their struggles. We can provide for the needs of others in our community. Uh, it's no surprise I'm sitting because I broke my ankle in a couple of places, had to have surgery, and there have been people in our church that have loved and served my family by bringing us a meal because my wife is now taking care of four children, as I've said. And so people provide, this is the way that we encounter God through his spirit and the love of others for us in community. It means we sacrifice our time, our treasures, and our talents for others, serving them as Christ has served us. It means we live out the gospel in word and deed, and we live this out together as we encounter God with one another. And then as we think about evangelism and mission, of taking the good news of Jesus to the watching world, we must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, make me aware as I'm working. Is there somebody in my workplace that is going to be most receptive to the good news of the gospel? Who is the person of peace, if you've ever heard that language? And may I be completely dependent on you in that. Brothers and sisters, it's not on you. God's empowering presence is inside of us, and he wants us to encounter him. Well, who makes all this possible? Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you've not put your hope and faith in Jesus, you do not belong to him, and his Spirit does not dwell in you. 
But if you belong to Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of Christ is alive in you. And this is what is incredible about this. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And listen to these words. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You know, we're all all likely in some sense, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, it's quite a story if you don't trust it. If you do trust it, we go, the resurrection's amazing. Yet, hear what we read. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he wants to give life to your mortal body. Wow. I see too many of us walking around like zombies. Bring us to life. Holy Spirit, would we recognize that we can encounter you 